Good evening, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to Genesis chapters 33 and 34, we'll do our best to get through both chapters tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're able to come together in different places, but in spirit, we're able to worship you. And that's the only way you can be worshiped is in spirit and truth. And you're searching for those who will do such. And that's why we're here. So God, I pray that you bless everybody in their homes, wherever they are listening and watching. I pray that you'd encourage them with your word tonight, which you teach us by your Holy Spirit. I pray that your word would be alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut between the joint and the marrow, discerning between the soul and the spirit, as we'll talk about that tonight. And I pray that you'd help us to understand it. These are some tough scriptures, but so important for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight in chapter 33, beginning in verse 1, Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Jacob's not sure what kind of greeting he's going to get. If you remember from last week, he's been sending gifts and sending flocks to his brother, trying to soften the blow. I'm coming back. I hope you're not still mad. I haven't heard anything, um, but I'm hoping everything is okay. Um, but he's not sure. And so he sends these flocks and tries to soften and say, I'm giving you gifts, all the inheritance that I took from you when I left, that trickiness that I had uh, done to you with our, with our dad. Uh, Lord, I, I, you know, I just pray uh, that you'd be forgiving. And so he comes humbly. Jacob, last week, wrestled with the Lord, wrestled with Jesus Christ. And uh, it was an interesting time for him. It was a time where he had to submit to the Lord and allow God to do something in his life that had never happened before. And that's where God changed his name from Jacob, the deceiver, into Israel, governed by God. And this is a true mark of someone who's been born again, someone who's had that relationship with the Lord, how it's begun, is there's humility, there's meekness. There may be a lot of power. There may be a lot of wealth. There may be a lot of notoriety, fame even. But someone who's had an encounter with the living God, who is so much higher than they are, there is an automatic meekness. There is a, a built-in um, submission that can be seen by all. And Jacob shows that to his brother here. So he bows down to him seven times, showing submission. And his response from his brother is in verse 4, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then his maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. So uh, they're, they're meeting old Uncle Esau for the first time. Maybe they'd heard a lot of stories about him and weren't sure about him. Big red hairy guy with 400 men. I imagine it was an interesting family reunion here. The kid's not sure whether to look him in the eye or not. Wives, not sure. Nobody was sure how this day was going to go. Um, but it's going well so far. As Esau ran to meet his brother. Some say Esau's intent with the 400 men was to do harm. 
Um, we don't know that, nor does the even text uh, hint at that. If anything, it hints that he was bringing a, a group with him because he's so powerful uh, as an entourage to protect him and, and more than likely to protect his brother coming back into the land. That seems to be the way this is headed and the way this looks. Remember, Esau is the king of Edom. Edom. He's an Edomite. This is the beginning of a nation. And God had promised that to Esau, and it's been fulfilled. He's very rich and not just like a big family or a nice family business, but he is king over many cities. Um, he's a big guy, big, big time. And as he comes to greet his brother, it appears that all things have been forgiven, that there's nothing held against him. And so he gets to meet him. Hey, who are all these little ones with you? Let me meet my nephews and my niece. Then Esau, verse 8, said, What do you mean by all the company which I met? And those were those waves of people that Jacob was sending to soften the blow, waves of goats and camels and all these things, trying to get him. What, what, what was that all about, he says. And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. And as much as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me, please take my blessing that, it, uh, that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. You know, it's one of those moments. Oh, here, let me buy dinner. No, I'm not buying. You're not buying me dinner. I'm buying dinner. So you know those conversations. This is a little bit of a bigger deal, but that's basically what's happening. And finally, you know, Old Jake wins. You know, you got to take my blessing. You got to take it. All right, I'll, I'll take your stuff. If, if you're going to force it on me, I'll take it. It's interesting how Jacob words it. I'm giving this to me because God has dealt graciously with me. Graciousness and mercy are two different things. Esau is being merciful. Grace is to bestow upon someone a blessing that they didn't deserve, that they didn't earn. Mercy is withholding something from somebody that they did deserve, like a punishment. We, you know, I, I want mercy. Please uh, stop the pain. Don't, don't inflict any more pain on me. And so a merciful person would stop. But a gracious person bestows gifts upon somebody that doesn't deserve it, as our God has done with us. And that's, what, that's how Jake sees it. He sees it as God has been gracious to me. He's bestowed upon me things I, I didn't earn. And that is another mark of someone who has truly been born again, someone who's been touched by God. Um, it's different. It's changed. Their heart is different. Um, they understand they didn't deserve it. A lot of people have their relationship with God and think that with, they've got it coming. They've earned it. And many people out there are trying to earn their way to heaven, trying to do what they can do to get there. Maybe enough good will outweigh the bad. Um, if I do enough good deeds, that'll undo all the bad deeds. And that's not how it works. The, the way to heaven is not a scale, never has been. It's never been a, I've done more good than I've done bad. Therefore, he's got to let me in. And God will never be a behold, beholden to any of us. He'll never be forced to let anybody in. The only way to heaven is through his graciousness. You, you can't undo a crime. A crime has to be paid for. A crime has to have a penalty, and justice must be served. And so all of our sins that have separated us from God truly deserve a judgment. And there's no way to undo that judgment. You may be a better person from that day forward, but that doesn't undo the things you've done in the past. The only way to have those things undone is to have somebody take that penalty for you or to pay that penalty for you. 
And that's what Christ has done. Jacob understands that. I wrote down here my notes from a previous teaching, and um, sometimes I'm reminded of what I've taught in the past, and it's kind of good that I, that I write these things down. It's, um, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the beginning of fear is grace. It's the loving kindness of Christ that leads people to repentance. When I see God's graciousness, when I see someone that powerful, that, that awesome, not doing what, they deserve, what, what I deserve, not doing to me what I have coming to me, there's a great respect. There's a great awe. There's a chance. There's an opportunity. There's a hope. Because most people are defensive against God. Most guilty people who understand their sin, they know it, are defensive against God because they know he's coming for them. And they're worried about it. So they're defensive, and that's natural. But when they see a gracious God looking at them, a merciful God, ready to bestow grace and mercy, if they'll receive it, that changes everything. And a fear develops, a, a good fear. Not, not a fear like we're having right now with this pandemic. That's a, that's a, a worldly fear. That's something that people just, I don't know, we just get scared of. It's not that kind of fear. It's a, it's a healthy respect for a father or a, a loving respect for a mother. It's that kind of fear. And God's trying to bring that out of all of us by showing his graciousness to us, by showing us his mercy, his power on full display in the universe, but showing that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins shows us his grace and his mercy. And that should develop in us a healthy fear of a father who loves us and is looking, looking to bless us. And so Jacob has experienced that. He's found that. And so he says, please take my stuff. It'd be a blessing to me if you took it. He goes, all right, I'll take it. And then Esau said to him in verse 12, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that can that go before me and, and with the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and seer. So Jake's saying, no, don't, don't wait for us. We're, gonna, we're just going to slow you down. You go on ahead. We'll catch up, but we've got to go at a slow pace. I've got kids with me. I've got animals. So he's not fully understanding why Esau's there. He's trying to let him go ahead of us. And honestly, Jacob's being a little deceitful again right here. Seems honest, but he's, he's not being honest. Go on to Seir. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. And that's where we get our trigger. That's where we get our clue as to why Esau's there. You, you need security. Let me leave some of my folks with me at least, so that they, or with you, so that they could at least protect you and watch out for you. But he said, Jake said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth. He built himself a house and made booths for his livestock, and therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. That's kind of a, a short little paragraph there, but something drastic's happened. I'll meet you in Seir. You go on ahead. Let me leave some guys with you. You're going to need some security. Bunch of Hittites around here. No, 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 we'll be okay. Look how big we are. You can see that I don't have need of that. You go on ahead. And Esau's already given in once with all the stuff he gave him. He says, fine, that's fine. You, as long as you got it, you got it. I'll, I'll meet you in Seir. I mean, that's his intent. But Jacob doesn't go to Seir. He stops at Succoth. 
And he doesn't just plant his tent there. He builds his house there and he builds barns. He's not going to Seir. He let Esau believe he's going to Seir, but he's not going there. And there's a problem with this. And it's going to develop in chapter 34. God told Jacob that I want you to go back to your land, but also back to your family. Now he is back in the land. He's crossed over the Jordan. And so he's kind of in that area, but that's a big area. He's supposed to go all the way back to Seir. He's supposed to go to where his brother is, where his dad is. He's supposed to be in that area, but he stops at Succoth. He stops in the middle of Hittite territory, in the midst of some of the most carnal people that eventually, 400 years from now, will be evicted from this land. And he plants himself there. He plants his family there. He takes his business there. He keeps his flocks there. And it's going to cause problems because he doesn't obey God. It's in Genesis 32.9 that Jacob says out of his own mouth, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. At that point, Jacob was reminding God, remember, you're going to keep me safe all the way back to my family, all the way back. But he comes up short of being fully obedient to what God called him to do, even though he knows by his own mouth, by his own testimony, what he's supposed to do. That's a danger for all of us. It's a great lesson this, tonight. All of us have something God's called us to do, and we need to be fully obedient to that. Partial obedience is disobedience. Always has been, always will be. Let me say that again. Partial obedience is disobedience. When we were learning how to raise kids, still are, by the way, but that was one of the lessons we received was when your kids are partially obedient, they're being disobedient. There's a there's a, a fullness that we need. And that wasn't just because we wanted our way as parents and we wanted to be the adults in the room, but because we were training them to be fully obedient to God later on. Now, maybe they didn't understand that at the time, but still we were trying to develop in them a, a heart of full obedience, first-time obedience. When you hear me say this, I want you to do it the first time I say it, not the second, not the third. I'm not counting down from 10 to 1 before I give you whatever consequence we give, I want you to do that the first time. And I want you to do it because you love us, because you want to be obedient. We had a situation uh, right off the bat. Dad had his ladder up against the house. I know you've heard this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it's a great example of that first-time obedience. I had my ladder up against the, the, the gutter, and I was climbing up and down, getting on top of a low portion of the roof, but it was a it was a split level, and so the back side was three stories, and the front side was one story. So if you climbed up this roof, it was just a you know, 10-foot fall, but on the back side, it was more like a 25-foot fall. Well, I left the ladder up, went inside, and when I came back out, my, my oldest now, my firstborn, JC, was on top of our roof. And he was, gosh, I don't remember how old he was, five, six years old. That's when you need first-time obedience. His dad's down there not wanting to get in trouble with mom. And tells his son, sit down right now. And he did. He immediately sat down on the roof and waited for me to come up. And I said, I'm not mad. I told him that all the way up there. I'm not mad. I just don't want you to fall. We need to come down. Let's walk down. And I walked him down. But that first time obedience. Now, if he was one of those kids that liked to run when dad says sit down, he'd have run right off the roof. He'd have been in danger. We instilled in him, first-time obedience. You're not in trouble. I just need you to do what I told you to do right away because it's a safety thing. And he did, and he learned that. 
We need to learn that as Christians. God tells us immediately, stop, sit down, don't go forward. We need to listen to him. A lot of us have seen those movies where every, there's booby traps everywhere and they're, and they're taking their steps and someone says, don't move. And they stop and they say, look, there's a tripwire right there. First time obedience. It's a good thing. God is trying to help us navigate through this world. There's pitfalls. There's traps that Satan lays for us all over the place. No, don't go that way. Go this way. No, stop. Backtrack. Go over here. I want you to head over here. We have to be listening to the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit. A Christian can't just just run across a field like that. We've got to listen to the leading of the Lord as we walk this walk with him in this life. Jacob knows what he's supposed to do. God was very clear with him. Jacob even said it back to God to make sure. And God knows that he knows, but he's not doing it. This disobedience is going to bring such heartache, such disaster on this family and the people of the land. Here's what happens. Verse 18, then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came for Padanaram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. And, and that's wonderful that he, that he did that, but it's in the wrong spot. He's not where he's supposed to be. So chapter 34 happens because of that. It says now Dinah, and remember Dinah's the only girl in the bunch. There's 11 boys and one girl. Benjamin isn't born yet, and that would make the 12th son, but for now it's just the 11. Now Dinah's the only daughter. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the, of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attached to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. Now, there's lots of verbiage here that makes it confusing as to what's happening here. And, I, and I'm here to tell you, I'm not sure. The Bible says she was violated, and so that's the way I'm going to lean. I'm, I'm guessing this was not something she wanted. We don't know if she was being disobedient. You can think of it that way. She went, you know, it depends on how we think. When you read the Bible, we've got to be careful to only read what Scripture tells us and not read into it. And I'm guilty of that sometimes. But there's a couple ways it could go, you know, hey, I'm leaving, Mom, and I'm going to party, and I'm going to go see what the girls of the land are doing. And you could teach it that way. And that's what happens when you go places you're not supposed to go, do things you're not supposed to do, you get into trouble, and you put yourself in danger. Okay? You could teach that. It could have very well been her parents, too. Hey, we're going to be here a while. Why don't you go out and make some friends? It puts a whole new light on the subject. We don't know what happened, but we do know this, that she was violated. She doesn't say, nobody else says, the scripture's silent on it, but it does tell us that she was violated. Now, we know what that means. It means that her, her virginity has been taken from her, but this is, a, this is a Canaanite group. These are Hivites. These are people that are carnal. The, it's foreign to us as Christians to have promiscuity or any kind of sex outside of marriage. We know that that's wrong. And it should be foreign to us. It should be shocking to us. It's, 
that's abhorrent, but to the world, it's normal. To the world, it's just what you do. It's um, you try people on for size to see if you like them or not, and if you don't, you break up with them. That's just the world and the, what what they do. But as far as a believer goes, and as far as this family goes, you don't do that. You wait till you're married. It's a no-brainer. But to this group, the worldly group, this, these Hivites, they don't know. And so they see a girl, and hey, she's out with the other ladies. She's mixed in with this other group of girls that does this. And they takes her. Now he speaks kindly to her. This is different from another story that we've read of rape where the girl was not spoken kindly to. She was left by her brother. This is different. He speaks kindly to her. In other words, this is normal for him. I took her. I grabbed her. I wanted her to be my wife. I tried to sweet talk her afterwards. I don't. I fault him for it. I mean, he's, he's a carnal guy. He's a worldly guy. He's in the wrong. Um, he deserves judgment. He, he, you know, he's completely off his rocker. I just don't want anybody to misunderstand me here. But he's acting the way a worldly person acts. This is what they do. This is what his group does. This is what his family does. So much so that he goes up to his dad and says, hey, I found this girl. Get her for me. All right. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and then they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. You guys know this is like 400 years before the law is given. There's an understanding in Genesis of what's right and wrong. There's a conscience that's very well alive in people. People that are following the true and living God know what the right thing to do is, and they know what the wrong thing to do is, and they have a choice to make, just like we do. As much as I love the, the, the struggle and the trial to keep the Ten Commandments in public parks, they're not necessary. It's all written on our hearts. We know what's right and wrong. We know when we violated one of God's laws. The Holy Spirit is there to convict us of our sin, of righteousness and judgment. He's always there. And so likewise, in this situation, that's what's happened. They all know this is wrong. This shouldn't have happened. She should be married before she has sex outside of marriage. She should not be doing this, and nor should he. This is his fault. And so they're mad, and they're defending their sister as they should. So they're upset. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. And make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us in the land and shall be, and it shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. There's no reason we can't all get along. Your tents are here. You're living here. I mean, he's, this is a big operation. We know we'd, we'd love to intermingle with you. Now, Jacob is to be set apart. Jacob is to be Israel, governed by God. Jacob had to be sent away to go find his wife, remember? Where did Esau get his wives? That's his brother. Where did Jacob's brother Esau get his wife from? They were Hittites. And they were a grief to his parents. Both Isaac and his wife and, and Rebekah were just grieved by these women because they were so carnal. It was something that they looked past. There was something about it. Esau was a worldly guy. He was a tough guy. He was a rough guy. He was always out there. He's 
kind of fleshy, but we like that about him. Remember his dad? I love your stew. I love your hunting. I love that. And was able to let that go. And when he goes and finds these wives that are just like him, that pleased him physically, maybe even uh, emotionally, but not spiritually, they were grieved by it. They realized what they'd done. They, they'd embraced that. See, sometimes as parents, we can see that, I think what they call it around here is being ornery, ornery. I don't know how you guys pronounce it. And we let things go, but ornery can't be disobedience. If we call disobedience to God and disobedience to parents ornery, then we're laughing at it and we're sloughing off sin. We're saying it's no big deal. It's just a, it is a big deal. If orneriness is sin, if it is disobedience, then we need to treat it as such. It's not okay. Oh, boys will be boys. No, Esau will be Esau. And he found himself a couple of women that he should have never married and are grief to him. And so when they saw that happening with him, they sent Jacob away to go get his wife from his own people, people that knew the true and living God, people that would worship like they worshiped and understood you don't have sex before marriage, that you don't do that. There's some things you just don't do. We may make a lot of mistakes, but we know what's right and we know what's wrong. You don't marry people that don't. So Jacob had been sent away, and now Dinah has fallen into this situation, and only because it's not her fault, dad didn't go where he was supposed to go. Jacob was supposed to go all the way to Seir. Instead, he plants his tents right here. If this doesn't remind us of Lot, pitching his tents towards Sodom, I don't know what does. It's the same thing. Jacob stops in the middle of a carnal place, doesn't want to go all the way back to where the family is for whatever reason. Maybe he wants to carve out his own niche in the land or something, but brings his family into this situation that's going to get ugly, uglier than it already is. Poor Dinah, you know? She should be amongst family, but she's not. Dad's put her in this place where all she has around her are carnal people. As parents, we have to be really careful about that. To putting our kids out in a place that's worldly. I hear that a lot. Well, I'm going to send my kids out as missionaries. They're going to be missionaries out there. Would you send your kid to Africa to be a missionary? Would you send them to Russia? Are they equipped? Are they prepared to stand on their own two feet? To be able to uh, proclaim the gospel to a people group that's venomous towards them, it hates them, um, against an enemy that wants to devour them? We have to be very careful as parents that we don't justify our laziness and send them off to these places to go ahead and, well, they're just, they're missionaries. They're just being like Christ to those around them. And we're surprised when they get devoured by this group or they turn into, they're not influencers, they're influenced and they're changed. It's sad. Jacob did not take his family all the way back to where they should be. He stops in the middle of a carnal land, and now carnality is filling his house. It's seeping in. It's attacking. To the point where, it's okay, this is what we do around here. Why don't we just get married to each other? I'll give you our daughters, you give us your son. It'll all be good, and it's all going to work out. We're just going to intermingle with the Canaanites. Totally ruining God's plan for a Messiah. You can see how Satan worked. He got Esau. He got Esau to intermingle. Now, if, 
If Satan can get Jacob to intermingle, that's it. We've thwarted the plan of God. Messiah will be cut off. There's no way for it to happen. The prophecy about the heel smashing Satan's skull can't happen. That's the plan here. Jacob's got to be careful. Jacob's quiet. Jacob doesn't say anything to the boys because he knows that they're going to upset. He doesn't say anything here. His boys are having to stick up for their sister when dad should be the one sticking up for the daughter. This is an interesting time we have right now where the men in the households right now must be the high priests of their home. There's no place to take your family to be shepherded. There's no place to take them to let someone else educate your kids about Jesus. It has to be done in the home right now. That's a good thing. I'm not saying COVID's a good thing. I'm saying God will use it to bring about good things and is. Bible studies at home with dad leading it. Dad can't, most dads can't even go to work right now. And if you're a single mom, you're getting to lead your family spiritually. You're the one who has to be strong right now. That's a good thing. Jacob is weak. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. Let's just intermingle. Verse 11, then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, so the boy steps in who violated Dinah, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you ask to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. He doesn't think dad's maybe pulling it off. He can see the skepticism on the, on the guys on, on the other side of the table on their faces. And he's like, oh, no, anything. I'll do anything for her. So, I mean, this guy's, he really likes her. It's interesting. What does he like her, though, with? It says way back there in verse 3, it says soul. His soul loves her. We get confused about that in, in the church. Um, the soul and the spirit. We don't know something. Let me read some scriptures to you that maybe clear some of that up. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it's a scripture I use during prayer. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's the first time we get a glimpse of, that there's a difference between the soul and the spirit. They're not the same thing. They're not interchangeable. Soul is, it's emotion. We've got the flesh and we've got our soul, our motion, our intellect. But then there's the spirit. That's the part when God, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born of the spirit. That's the part that's dead. That's the part that sin takes away. And that's what accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior revives. Your soul is very alive and well. Emotions running rampant. So many people's emotions are running rampant right now. They're ruled by their soul. They're ruled by their emotions. And they don't know what to do. They're full of anxiety, depression, worry, doubt, not sure, anger sometimes, lust other times, but it's all being run by their soul, and their body just does whatever. Follows it around. But when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're a born-again believer, and the Spirit is revived, now there's some competition Instead of just doing what your flesh wants to do, instead of just doing what your emotions are telling you to do, now you've got the Spirit trying to be on the throne of our lives saying, no, obey God, obey His Word, do what He wants you to do. Now you still have a choice to obey the Spirit or to obey the soul or your mind or your flesh. 
But God wants us to obey the Spirit. This guy, this guy, I love her with my soul. That's just emotional. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's not the Spirit. Second Scriptures, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a term um, that we use. It's called carnal Christians. Christians that have believed on Jesus but are ruled by their soul. They're ruled by their carnality. They're ruled by their flesh. They don't obey the Spirit. They don't allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide them. And they don't follow. <clears throat> and God is not on the throne of their heart. That's a carnal Christian. He wants us to be completely sanctified. The whole Spirit, the whole soul, the whole body needs to be brought under the authority of Jesus Christ. This guy isn't. He's not there. So please, let me give you whatever it is. How much money do you want? Let me buy this woman from you. And it is a custom. That's what they would do as a dowry. They would pay. And then if he ever divorced her, she would get all that money. That would be her inheritance or something to protect her and provide for her throughout her life. Let me do whatever you want me to do. So the boys step in, her brothers. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamer, his father, and spoke deceitfully. Because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. Now, you guys are uncircumcised. You're a bunch of hit to, can't do that. You got to be circumcised to be in our family. So here's what I want you to do this one condition. If you will become as we, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Now, they're being deceitful. We're told that right away. What is circumcision? What is the point of it? The point of circumcision, it was given by God to Abraham to show that you are mine and I am yours. It's a relationship that started way before circumcision. Abraham and the Lord had a relationship, and God says, I want to solidify this. I want the world to know that you're mine, and I want you to know that you're mine. I want you to remember that. I want you to give up one of the most precious parts of yourself to me. And so circumcision was instituted at that point, but only after the relationship had started. It was to show that. And so these guys are doing it without God. They're changing the circumcision, what it meant, what it represented, and saying, if you just get circumcised, that's all it takes to marry us, without talking about the relationship with God they're supposed to have, without being in touch with the true and living God, without worshiping him, without offering up sacrifices to him. Just get circumcised and you can, you can get in with us. Maybe we don't understand what that means. It'd be like baptizing someone without telling them that they need to know Jesus Christ. You can't do that. Baptism is an outward sign of what's happened to that person. That person has accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They've trusted in Jesus for their salvation, and then they get baptized to show that. You can't get baptized without having the relationship with Jesus Christ. That doesn't work. It's not biblical. It's what these boys are doing. Got to have that relationship. So why don't you guys all get circumcised? Otherwise, we're out of here. 
So, verse 18, and their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. Yes, if that's what it takes, that's what I'll do. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us. (laughs) I don't know how you sell this to a bunch of guys sitting at your city, but they do it. We just have to do this one little thing before we can go on with the plan. To be one people, if every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock and their property and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city, he did Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Well, sure. If it means we're going to get stuff, we'll be glad to do it. So here's where the deception comes in. All the men are down. They're going to be down for several days now. They're weak. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword, came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamer and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? So dad doesn't do what he's supposed to do by not taking his family all the way into the land next to his other family. He doesn't lead them where he's supposed to go. And then he also doesn't stand up for his daughter to the point where his boys have to step up and do what dad should have done, and they go way overboard. The only thing that should have happened is Shechem should have been killed for this. That was his judgment. Not the whole town, not the whole people group. Now God's going to work it out. He always does, but they've done a horrible thing here. They've done something so blasphemous, so terrible. It's, it's, it would be the, similar to us taking someone out to baptize them until they don't come out of the water again holding them under until they stop kicking, taking a, 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 a symbol of, of God's relationship and completely perverting it and using it to bring about death and destruction, completely misrepresenting God to this group of people. How terrible. Are we where, are we where we're supposed to be? Are we completely obedient to God? Are there things in our lives that we're partially obedient to when it comes to God and his will? 
Are there areas of our life that we haven't surrendered? We know where we're supposed to be. We know what we're supposed to be doing, and yet we're just partially there. That's disobedience. I'm not here to hammer us all and drive us in, but uh, you know, drive us into the ground. But I, I, I want us to be examining our hearts. We live in a culture, a world that is very much like a Hittite, very much, very much like a Hivite very much like a parasite, all of these ites. We live in a world like that that's outside of God's domain. They do not worship him. They do not love him. Now, I know he's king of the universe. Don't get me wrong. He's on the throne, of course, but they're in, they're in deep rebellion against him. And we're saturated with it all around. Have I become tainted? Am I like Lot in any way, shape, or form with my kids? Am I like Jacob here in any way, shape, or form? allowing them little encroachments into the areas of sin that God I know has specifically told us we're not to be a part of. It's time for obedience, full obedience, first-time obedience. You don't have to tell me twice, God. I want to be completely obedient to you. Take this time that we have been forced to be around our families more often than we normally are. I, I think about some of the parents that are having a difficult time parenting their kids at home. And I have views about that. I have views about everything. But for a lot of them, they're out of practice. They get them up. They give them breakfast. They're sitting by the, by the door for the bus at 7 a.m. or earlier. They're gone all day long. They come back. They're told to do their homework for a couple hours. They're told to eat dinner. They have TV time and they go to bed. There's very little interaction. There's very little time for conversations, board games, all these things that are normal. God throughout Israeli history would give them specific feasts and times where they would spend with their families and take weeks at a time and months at a time so that they would spend time thinking of the Lord, thanking him, having a feast, enjoying themselves and drawing close to one another and talking about his word and what he's promised them and what he's done in the past for them. I'd encourage you to take this time. There's something in Israeli history about the Babylonian captivity. For several generations, they neglected to give the land a Sabbath, to give it the rest that it needed. And God took it all at once. All those back Sabbaths, all those times where he wasn't talked about, where he wasn't honored, where he wasn't obeyed. He sent them into the Babylonian captivity so that the land could get its rest. Now, I'm not saying that's what this is. But I think we all get a sense that this is surreal. This is bizarre, what we're going through. It's strange. There's a lot of conspiracies out there. Some of them may be right. I don't know. I don't pay attention to that because my king is Jesus. And I'm one of his subjects and I'm submitted to him and to his authority. And I merely represent him here as an ambassador of his from the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That's what I do. I tell people about the Lord. I'm educating right now about the Bible. It's it's what God's called me to do. So it doesn't matter to me what the world is planning, what conspiracies are out there, what plans there are. I know what God's plan. God will use this in our lives. Every time Satan tries to do something to the church, flourishes. When he ignites a fire to try to burn him out or to try to snuff him out, it always backfires on him. He's never learned. He does not have one new trick in his bag. Stomp out those Christians. 
tar- put them on fire, put them in with the lions. Every time he does that, every time he tries to extinguish us, we just grow. Adversity's always been a blessing to the church. Trials and tribulations have always caused us to grow in our faith. I hope you take this time to grow in your faith. Use it for what it's intended to be used for. Don't be caught up in fear and doubt and conspiracies and trying to second-guess the governments all around us. They're going to do what they're going to do. What does your king want you to do? As a subject of the Most High God, as a servant of the Most High God, what would God have you do during this time? Let's serve him wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to uh, discern between um, the intents of our heart and our actions, to be able to cut between the soul and the spirit. To be able to do that is amazing. Only your word can do that. And it's done that for us. It cuts right through all the garbage, all the news, all the information or misinformation. Your word cuts right through it all. We're thankful for that. So thank you for speaking to us tonight by your spirit. Pray that your word would be planted in our hearts, that it would have deep roots in our lives and bear much fruit. I pray that we grow, that we grow in grace, that we be like Jacob as he bows down before, although he's very powerful and rich and has so much that God has given him, he still bows down and serves those around him. Lord, I pray that we would do that. Help us to be a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.